Welcome again to Intergenerational Politics with Jill Weinbanks and Victor Shi, where we host weekly political discussions that are relevant and engaging to all generations with experts on various issues facing our country today. This is Victor Shi. I'm going to be an incoming freshman at UCLA, and I'm also the youngest Biden delegate here in Illinois. Jill, do you want to give us a little bit of background of who you are? Hi, I'm Jill Weinbanks, and I'm from the other end of the spectrum in terms of generations, several generations older than Victor. Uh, I was a Watergate Special Prosecutor, General Counsel of the Army, Deputy Attorney General of Illinois, and I'm now the author of The Watergate Girl, available from Holt, and I am also um, a Biden delegate and an MSNBC legal analyst. Uh, I'm also a very good friend of our guest today, who is a fascinating person and who will give us a lot of information, very useful to all generations about the recent Supreme Court decision and what it means to every one of us listening to this podcast. Definitely. And as always, we want to thank you for listening to Intergenerational Politics. Um, today, we are recording a special episode of Intergenerational Politics on the issue of women's reproductive rights in the aftermath of yesterday's Supreme Court decision, June Medical Services versus Russo, which is a case that revolved around a Louisiana law that allowed doctors who administer abortions to have the right to admit patients into a hospital within 30 miles of the place in which the abortion is performed. In a five to four decision yesterday with Chief Justice John Roberts joining the liberal justices, the court struck down this law because of one, a nearly similar case that was also struck down in 2016, Whole, Woman, Whole Woman's Health versus Hellerstedt, and two, because of such a law in LA and Louisiana that would um, present an undue burden on a woman's ability to receive an abortion as the number of doctors in the state could be reduced to only one. So Jill, I'll hand it back off to you. So we couldn't be more excited today <laughs> than to have Sylvia Tamarkin as our guest. She is a remarkable person. She is an award-winning filmmaker, uh, a journalist, investigative journalist, and a former television news executive. She has produced independent and cable documentaries, as well as many other things. Um, she was a CNN executive and a producer of CNN's Emmy Award-winning weekly news magazine show, CNN and Time. She also has done investigative segments for ABC World News Tonight, um, and she has been involved through her investigative reporting in exculpating um, a person on death row and in the first exculpatory DNA use in Illinois, maybe in the country. Uh, she can tell us that herself. Um, Sibia was um, the writer, the director, and the producer of the film Birthright, A War Story, which I highly commend to all of you. A link will be available to that film on our um, Facebook page and Victor will tell you where else it will be. Uh, and Sivia can mention also where <laughs> it is hosted because it's really something that everyone should see. It shows the unforeseen consequences of the abortion decisions in our country for women who want to have children as well as for those who need to terminate a pregnancy. It has to do with reproductive rights and the health of all women. Um, the film you can, I know, get at, uh, on the internet at birthrightfilm.com and uh, you'll see more about that on our website. So thank you for being here with us today, Sylvia. Well, thank you for having me. Um, 
if I can get in a little plug, you can't get the film on, at birthrightfilm.com. You can find out where it's available. And it's on Amazon and iTunes and Vudu and many other platforms digitally. But I'm very excited to be here to discuss yesterday's Supreme Court decision. I would make one correction to you, Victor, mm -hmm. and that is the case did not allow doctors to have admitting privileges to hospitals. The contention was that the law required them to have admitting privileges, and therein is the rub, because so many of the hospitals were too far away from the available clinics. Moreover, the doctors, the providers who did try to get admitting privileges were denied it. And most of those denials were on the basis of religious refusals by the hospitals. And so therefore they were caught in a catch-22. But the decision is very interesting because everybody that you saw, the news media was heralding it as upholding a woman's constitutional right to abortion. And there were people who were saying, let's do a happy dance to celebrate. And I suppose, you know, when your score is zero versus a thousand, and you've had a thousand restrictions passed since Roe v. Wade, we'll take whatever small wins we can get. But in reality, this merely plugged a hole in a dike that is crumbling all over the place. So it's a temporary reprieve from the ongoing assaults but it in no way is a major, major victory. And in fact, Roberts did in this case, very similarly to what he did in the DACA case, is that he ruled against this on legal grounds. In this case, it was stare decisis precedent, but he gave the opposition a roadmap. He lit the way for them to file other cases. And there is a pipeline of at least 16 cases waiting to um, see if they will be heard by the court and more than that in the work. So it was a win and we'll take what we can get at the moment. And you know, as I said, if you're on a losing streak, you'll take whatever small victories you can get, but it is not a major, major, um, substantive victory. What it does is put the final nail in the trap laws, the, the so-called admitting privileges laws and the targeted um, restrictions against abortion providers. But it certainly opened up the floodgates of possibility to other types of restrictions. So let me stop you for just one second because I hadn't heard about trap laws until I talked to you about it. And that is targeted restrictions against abortion providers, trap laws. Right. And that is something like saying that you have to have admitting privileges, which are completely unnecessary to the medical and physical health of the patient. Uh, they were just really an excuse to deny women the right and the opportunity and the access to a provider who would perform this service. Um, so I think we need to keep that in mind. And 
let's talk a little bit about, you mentioned there are a lot of other possible restrictions that are pending. Some have been, uh, you know, voted down like this one, but what's in the pipeline that might stand in the way? And also, could you also address how this affects the overall health of women in general, including those who wish to have uh, a successful pregnancy, who want to go full term and have children? Sure. Well, let me just go back for a moment and put the trap laws in context. In 2010, the opposition to reproductive freedom came up with a new strategy. That strategy was, well, we've always been talking about protecting the fetus. Now we're going to talk about protecting the woman's health. So we're going to enact, as part of this charade in the veneer, we're going to enact all of these laws which will protect women. And what they did was pass laws that required clinics to be like ambulatory surgery centers, uh, certain measurements for hallways, certain measurements for doorways to get um, gurneys inside. And they passed this admissible, you know, um, hospital admissions requirement. Those are what we call trap laws because these do not prohibit women. They put restrictions on the providers. Now, with yesterday's decision, we think we've seen the end of those. But what is in the pipeline are all kinds of other restrictions. Gestational limits, like a six-week ban, an 11-week ban, pre-viability gestational limits. There are what we call reason limits, which Mississippi, Alabama, Indiana, numerous states, um, if your reason for wanting to terminate has to do with a discovered genetic abnormality, a Down syndrome, you are precluded in certain states. If your decision is based upon sexual selection, um, you know, I have five girls and I don't want another one, whatever the decision may be, those are in the pipeline. And of course, there are numerous other laws similar to that, restricting. Um, so these are the things that are now coming up for the test. But most importantly, what is in the pipeline are laws that attempt to establish the constitutional rights and the personhood of a fetus. And there has been a long strategy of policing reproductive health, policing the womb as we call it, in order to pave the way for this under child protection laws. Do you take any comfort from Robert's upholding precedent because Roe does set a viability standard um, and we know that viability unfortunately can, can vary uh, and medically uh, be come sooner than the amount that was set up in Roe v. Wade. Um, but at least there is some hope because there was adherence to precedent. Does that give you any comfort? Very, very little. Because since 1973, what the opposition is arguing 
uh, is that viability has changed due to technology now. So that they are saying 26 weeks was the viability cutoff under Roe. Now they are saying that fetal survival can be moved down to you know 20 weeks, et cetera, in some cases. Um, so I'm not sure that that as precedent would hold. What I am more concerned about is that what Roberts did was affirm the precedent in Casey versus Planned Parenthood, the 1992 case, which said states may indeed restrict abortion as long as it doesn't pose an undue burden. So he reaffirmed the right of states to restrict in this decision. What he questioned is what poses, what is the definition of a substantial obstacle? That leaves a lot of wiggle room. Mm -hmm. Victor, and, did you have some questions? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so you have the pro-choice movement yesterday viewing this as a win. So I guess with this decision from the court, where do both sides go from here? Like, where, do this, where does the pro-life movement go from here and where does the pro-choice movement go from here? Well, the pro-choice movement, I must say that, you know, in, in my three years of being on the circuit, using the film as an educational tool and a tool of enlightenment, shall I say, they tend to lose focus. I mean, right now, they are so overwhelmed with so many cases, including states, by the way, that were using the pandemic as an excuse to eliminate access to abortion, claiming that it's an elective surgery. So when a number of states barred elective procedures during the COVID rise, um, abortion became one of the sacrifice procedures. But the movement is so overwhelmed and they are running, they are scurrying around trying to put out brush fires all over the place. There is no cohesive offensive. It has been a defense since, particularly since 2010, when um, Republicans took over so many state legislatures. I mean, there have been, as I said before, over a thousand, almost 1,100 restrictions passed since Roe v. Wade. There were 59 passed in 2019. Wow. And so they're scrambling to get injunctions to you know, to try to put out these fires. There is no cohesive strategy. On the other hand, the opposition has very carefully plotted a strategy. Um, as Jill knows from, from the film, which we document, they have trained two generations. They're on a third generation now of young people that they are training at their quote, pro-life camps. Mm. They have created a grassroots movement where they trained and groomed people for every level of legislative office, starting with school boards so they could ban sex ed, moving into state legislatures, moving into Congress, both houses. And of course, they kept their eye on the prize with the presidency because the Supreme Court is the end all be all for them. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you envision 
a war film, a World War II film with the, the flag pins on a map, they couldn't have been more delivered. And they continue to be. They have a pipeline of cases, as I said, that they are going to continue to challenge. But now their strategy will be to test what is a substantive obstacle. How far does this undue burden stretch? Mm -hmm. So, Sylvia, I, I want to go back to and make sure that we get a, um, a clear answer about how unforeseen consequences of the abortion restrictions have played out in terms of the health of all women. Uh, I know from the film there's some very dramatic impacts uh, that include people nearly dying, women nearly dying, because there are no doctors available to them who are trained in how to perform a, a, an abortion or other similar procedure to save their life when it comes down to it. Right. And they have been faced with doctors who say, no, I will save the fetus before I will save you, regardless of what your choice is, you and your husband or partner, whatever your choice is as to who will be saved, I am saving the fetus. And so I want to talk a little bit about that unforeseen consequence. And also you had mentioned to me the um, consequence for people who want to have healthy uh, live births and how it's affecting them, not just those who want to terminate the pregnancy. So what we have seen prevail over the last decade and beyond, but more so since 2010, is the fetus first mentality. Used to be, and the precedent for Roe was that protecting the pregnant person took precedence over the potential life. And now we are seeing the scales tipping. And this is evident in healthcare as well. What we have witnessed is very much, as we're both wearing our handmade pins, um, a situation where government legislatures and courts are regulating whether or not, when and how women, women give birth. So this affects women who certainly want to carry to term. You have cases around the country where women have court ordered hospitalizations and mandatory bed rest. That may sound wonderful, but what if you can't afford that? And what if you are the mother of two other toddlers um, if you're employed, how do you do this? There have been cases where, interesting case in Pennsylvania, where a woman was carrying an estimated 11 pound fetus. She already had other children. She was familiar with the birthing process. She knew her body, but yet the hospital went to court and got guardianship of the unborn fetus so that she could have a mandatory cesarean. She fled and her husband fled. And in fact, she delivered a very healthy baby boy. But there are cases all over the country where the process of birthing has fallen into the jurisdiction of the prosecution, the courts, etc. And on top of that, so it's what we're calling policing of the womb. Then you have the second component, which is this attempt 
to um, prosecute women for child abuse of the fetus. And therefore, the, the myriad opportunities to censure a woman are prevailing. You know, if a woman, case in New York, a woman was speeding in, in a car accident, fetus died, she was charged with the manslaughter of her fetus. So women are becoming afraid because of this regulation to police them under child abuse statutes. What if you've taken prescription drugs? What if you have had a glass of wine? What if you are lifting groceries that are too heavy? What if you're shoveling snow? At what point do you become afraid to go to a doctor if you are feeling problematic during a pregnancy? Finally, to compound those issues, we have the rise of Catholic healthcare. And in Illinois, for example, one in three beds, are acute care beds, are owned or managed by Catholic healthcare. There, it is the ethical doctrine of the bishops' conference regulates what procedures may be practiced. So miscarriage mismanagement is rampant, not to mention that women whose doctors become caught up in the buyouts of, of public or private hospitals. Mm -hmm. Women cannot access birth control. They cannot have tubal ligations, which may be a matter of life or death. Husbands can't get uh, vasectomies. They may not be able to get in vitro fertilization. But most problematic is that if they are miscarrying and their body is not naturally expelling this non-viable fetus, they may be hemorrhaging, they may be septic, and until they are at the danger point, there may be no intervention. Wow, that's uh, a yeah. scary, scary story. Uh, Victor, what's your reaction? Yeah, frightening indeed. And I guess for my generation, like we learn a lot about Roe versus Wade and like AP US history courses or in history courses throughout high school and how, you know, that was obviously such a big win for women's reproductive rights. Um, but what people don't often realize, like you said, is um, that in the 40 years since Roe was decided, these local municipalities, cities and states have begun not only restricting access to abortion, but also like contraceptives and sterilizations, which um, we see particularly for those who lack adequate resources in healthcare too. So I guess, like if you were advising the younger generation of men and women who are dedicated to guaranteeing women's reproductive rights, um, like what would you say to them in terms of making their voices heard and kind of coming out of this fight with a victory? Well, I have been saying for years, people need to take to the streets. Now they are taking to the streets. Mm -hmm. But what they need to recognize is the intersectionality, and that's a term that was coined several years ago by a woman in the reproductive justice movement, the intersectionality of racism, sexism, and classism. These are not isolated issues. So the younger generation needs to speak up, they need to shout out, it is not just police brutality, of course, that's major, but it is the policing of reproductive health. It is policing of contraceptives. It is chipping away at Roe. The reality is that Roe v. Wade does not exist in this country for the majority of women. 
92% of the counties in the United States have no providers. More than 52%, uh, I think it is, of the women who seek to terminate a pregnancy are low income and women of color. They have no access because if they are on Medicaid, thanks to Henry Hyde from Illinois, as of 1977, it's not covered. But beyond that, it is um, not covered. The procedure is not covered by many insurance carriers now. If you are on state affordable care policies, of course, we all know Trump would like to eliminate affordable care. But if you are on state policies, you won't have coverage. If you are in state insurance, if you work for a state university, if you're a professor, if you work for the US Forestry Department, if you're in the military, if you're a government contractor, you have no insurance coverage. And now, of course, we have limited access to contraceptives and we have the gag rule that Trump has passed that precludes funding for contraceptives to clinics that may also provide termination, even if under 3% of what they do is termination. So young people need to wake up. I think that most young people have a sense of entitlement, and I don't mean that negatively, they just think Roe is legal, abortion is legal. And so I can get contraceptives, I can terminate if I have to. That is not the case. I bet if most teenagers checked with their parents' insurance coverage, they would be very surprised. So they need to speak up. And of course, I have to get this plug in. If they are going to be 18 by November 3rd, they must, must register to vote. Yes, and definitely. make sure, because what this is all about, as we saw from the Supreme Court decision, the states have all the latitude. The States have the wherewithal to chip away at reproductive freedoms. So that's most important to pay attention to your local, to your state elections. But more importantly, same token, not more importantly, but equally on congressional and Senate races because there is the Women's Health Protection Act before the House. And if we can get the Senate and we can get the executive branch, we could pass that. And then Roe will be protected forever. So Sylvia, um, is there any point that we missed during the discussion that you'd wanna add um, before we draw this discussion to a close? I would like the younger generation to be very aware that the symbol of the coat hanger that our older generation used to use to represent back alley abortions is no longer representative of what is going to happen. Women are not going to have back alley abortions anymore because the abortion procedure is safer than having a wisdom tooth pulled. Hmm. What they will do if there is no access, they will go online, they will order the medication from Canada, from Europe, from wherever they can, they will take the pill and they will abort. And then if it is illegal in that state, because some states have provisions that only uh, medical personnel, only licensed physicians can perform an abortion. 
if your self-termination is discovered, you could wind up in jail. Like the case in Indiana, Herbie Patel, like a case in Idaho that I have in the film. So do not think that if you escape restrictions by ordering medicated abortion pills online, that you are safe. I can't tell you how enlightening this has been. Yes. And yes. Um, I think that your clarion call for students to take over this movement, I've been working on this for what, 60 years, 50 years? Uh, it seems like forever. And it's time for the new generation who is impacted by the restrictions right. and who could be severely uh, disabled from their rights. They need to really understand not just voting. And uh, in that connection, uh, I, let me say that Victor is very involved in Students for Biden. And so anybody listening who would like to join that organization should check out Victor's uh, website and his way of getting you involved. It's really important. That's what it's going to take. Um, but I think maybe the most important thing you said, Sylvia, is that people just don't realize uh, when I talked to Victor today, of course, he grew up in a time when there was always a legal right to have an abortion. When I was growing up, women still had back alley, dangerous abortion procedures, and because that's all that was available. And so I think that what's really important is all of you who are listening, who think that it is an inalienable right to control your body, it didn't used to be. And depending on what government we have in the future, which means voting in November, you may lose those rights. And the pin that Sivia and I are both wearing is really hearkening back to the days when women were chattel and didn't have any rights, where women couldn't have their own bank accounts, where they couldn't sell their own property. Um, let's not go backwards in time. So all of you who are listening, male and female, get involved, pay attention to not just this decision, but to the host of things that Sivia has pointed out that are in the pipeline because maybe they can't make your doctor have admitting rights or make the hallways in the um, health center that you go to wider than they need to be for the purposes of this, but watch out for the other things that they are going to do. Um, they defeated the Equal Rights Amendment through these kinds of attacks, and now they're gonna take away the right of choice. And I prefer to call the opposition the anti-choice a movement, not pro-life, because they aren't pro-life. If they were pro-life, they would be protecting right. children who are in cages right now and uh, being held in detention facilities. They would protect a lot more than what they are protecting. So they are anti-choice. And uh, Sivia, you've been remarkable. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And I think for like my generation, like what we're seeing right now after um, the devastating impact of George Floyd's death is young people i think are starting to realize the importance of educating themselves on these issues and i think for this issue specifically i think the best one of the best ways that you can educate yourself is to go to www.birthrightfilm.com and watch that documentary because it's disturbing but it shares so many of these 
hidden things that we don't see with the mainstream media or um, on our newsfeed every day. So I think starting with that and then using those facts to make your voices heard and then ultimately voting, I think, um, like Sylvia said, that's ultimately the end goal is to vote for all levels of candidates, um, down ballot, um, president, you know, Senate, congressional, state, local elections. Uh, can I just end with at least uh, two points? One is um, right after he left office, President Obama spoke in Chicago at the Economic Club. And when he was asked, what can we do? He said, be informed, be involved, and get out the vote. Mm -hmm. And those words ring very true today. And in terms of speaking out and getting involved, um, this goes back to my generation and to our involvement in civil rights during the 60s, uh, the anti-Vietnam protests. Speaking out had an effect. We changed how things were going. We took to the streets and we were heard. And you can see the impact now on racial equity, on police brutality, of speaking out now. And it's important, even in this time of social isolation, to be heard. And if you can't, if you don't feel safe, and many people don't, in going out and protesting, there's still social media. There are still emails that you can send your elected representatives at all levels. And I think Victor and Sylvia have made clear that the states are as important as the federal government, but both have a role in this. The federal government has cut off funding, but the states are setting up all of these restrictions. Mm -hmm. So all of you take heed and be informed, be involved, and get out the vote, which means yes. you voting as well. <laughs> definitely. And so yeah, we want to thank you so much again for joining us, Sylvia, and um, definitely check out her website, which we will post um, on our website, Intergenerational Politics. Um, but yes, in the meantime, definitely follow us on Twitter, on Facebook, on YouTube, and check out our website to find this conversation. Again, thank you so much, Sylvia. Thank you for letting me converse on this topic. Of course.